Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing. With the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world, new novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 239, Sherlock Holmes in Comics. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello, and welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wilder. And Bert, you look like Comic Sans today. Comic Sans? Oh, well, uh, it's better than old Gaudi, I suppose. <laughs> well, either way, you're a font of knowledge, I must Hatton say. Hattenschneider. Why can't I look like Hattenschneider? I think that would be good. <laughs> That's a good one. Or Dove's Type. I could get a nap if I looked like Dove's Type. Dove's Type has a fantastic backstory to it where the yes. actual uh, the actual type ended up in the Thames River. Yes, yes, exactly. Like me. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> well, for those interested in fonts and the mystery behind Dove's Type, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as a bonus to you, our listeners. If you'd like other bonus material, just check our show notes out at ihose.co slash ihose239. There you will be treated to all the links we talk about, as well as a way to get in touch with us, which of course includes email. We are comment at ihearofsherlock.com. We're always pleased to hear from you. Suggestions, feedback, and the like, all welcome. And of course, uh, as we said in the sponsorship announcement there, we love our Patreon supporters. We do have a little bit of bonus material for you today, some exclusive outtakes from our interview with Johanna Draper Carlson, who is here to talk with us about Sherlock Holmes in the comics. Johanna Draper Carlson has been reviewing comics for over 25 years and running comics worth reading since 1999. She has a Master of Arts degree in popular culture with focus areas on online fandom and the portrayal of hackers in popular culture. Her credits are numerous, including as a contributor to the Guide to United States Popular Culture, graphic novel reviewer for Good Comics for Kids, a school library journal blog since, 19, since 2017, a graphic novel and manga reviewer for Publishers Weekly from 2003 to 2014. A moderator for Doctor Who and Theology, a monthly discussion group from 2015 to the present. And co-host of the Manga Out Loud podcast from 2010 to 2012. And she just founded the Sherlock Holmes in Comics site at SherlockComics.com. Johanna Draper Carlson, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, I mean, we are so thrilled to have you on the show. You've uh, recently joined us as a contributor on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere 
www.thepeopleshow.com uh, on the website. And we are grateful for that. But more importantly, I think we and all of our listeners would love to know how you first got involved with Sherlock Holmes. Oh, well, that takes us back a number of years. When I was a kid, um, I was very grateful that my grandparents gave me the annotated Sherlock Holmes, the Baring Gould version. Um, I loved mysteries as a, as a teenager. I think a lot of so-called smart kids did. Um, and, but it was three years ago, in 2019, that I really got back into Holmes fandom, so to speak. Um, it was a really interesting year for me in a number of ways, a number of milestones, and Good Omens had just come out. Oh. And I started reading fic for Good Omens and discovered that a lot of the writers used to write for the BBC Sherlock fandom. And so I kind of fell backwards into the show and then the stories. Um, I find it really interesting to sort of navigate both of those branches of fandom, the media fandom and then the more traditional type. Um, and I, it was just so much fun to discover, especially since pandemic came along shortly thereafter, and we all found ourselves with a lot more free time in our houses. Yeah, what? I you're the first person I think we've talked to whose entryway into Sherlock Holmes not through the BBC Sherlock or through, you know, a link like the Good Omens link, but started with the Baron Gould annotated. I mean, what did? What did you make of it? I mean, didn't um, it's not well, the, you know it's kind of, it's sort of like discovering t Dracula by somebody giving you the annotated Dracula. I mean, <laughs> well, um, I've always loved the behind the scenes stories, the the metafiction, all those kinds of what's the story behind the story, and I really enjoy. I mean, <laughs> I think even as as a young person, I found the whole chronological obsession a little much. Um, you know, it was snowing on Tuesday in 1898, so Watson must have been wrong about it being 1896 or whatever it was. Um, but I really enjoyed the the comparisons of this is what the money meant then and purchasing power and all the background information. Uh, I actually have a master's degree in popular culture, so sort of continuing that thread of diving into how the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, that's actually what drew me to comics as well, in that it's it's one of the few mediums where you have such a thin line between who's considered a fan and who's considered a professional and and the people making it, interacting with the people who consume it or enjoy it. Um, that really fascinated me um, when I came back around to, to that aspect, which was in the mid-90s. Hmm. And this is, this is interesting because I'm seeing a lot of... Um... Uh, stray ends kind of meeting here in in episode uh, two thirty nine. Which uh, two? Excuse me, we're on two thirty nine. In episode two thirty seven, just two episodes ago, we talked with um, oh goodness, Paul. Uh, I'm blanking on his last name, but he's in charge of the DePaul uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes conference this year. It's a uh, kind of a uh, uh, popular culture. Uh, conference and uh, I, I am really botching this clearly because i don't have my notes in front of me but uh it's a celebration of sherlock holmes there it is uh, <laughs> i knew it was something like that uh where uh paul booth uh is his name was with us um and and it seems to me that yeah we can talk about the internet we can talk about television we can talk about films as they relate to sherlock holmes and yet uh, there is a common thread that's been with the character for, gosh, I want to say 90 plus years, and that is the comics. So, Johanna, I'm interested in your history with comics more generally, and then we can talk about how this kind of branched off into uh, Sherlock Holmes. Sure. Um well, when I, when I went off to grad school to get my master's in popular culture, everybody was studying more than one thing. And my primary area of study was online fandom and hackers in popular culture because, you know, in the mid-90s, it wasn't nearly as common as things were today. People weren't necessarily on the internet or knew what it was. Um, but then we also had this amazing newsstand in town. This was Bowling Green, Ohio, uh, that covered all kinds of publications, including a really comprehensive comic se section. And I'd always enjoyed reading comics and sort of dove back into it at the time and 
that ended up with me uh, running DC's website and AOL sites for a brief period of time. Um, I worked for DC Comics, uh, which is also um, the reason that I met my husband, who used to edit Superman. His name is Casey Carlson. Uh, uh, by, by the way, I love how you just kind of throw that out as an aside. I used to work for DC Comics. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd be surprised at the number of people who don't actually think that's cool. <laughs> Wow. Well, um, yeah. Well, it was a long time ago now, of course. But uh, but yeah, I, I was sort of one of the few people who was kind of uniquely qualified in, in having studied online fandom and um, working with, you know, the fans of comics, as I mentioned. And uh, uh, it was a really interesting experience. Um, I alluded earlier, if you know, if you enjoy sausage, you may not want to watch it being made. Um <laughs> I learned working in comics that uh, having people whose job and hobby and what they do on their weekends and all their friends all associated with the same thing, maybe not the healthiest thing in the world. <laughs> um, yeah, so, Bert, Bert and uh, I can attest to that. <laughs> um, well, so uh, I mentioned my husband because at the time we were dating, I had met him at a comic book convention when I walked up to him and said, I'm not reading your comic book anymore. And he said, would you like to talk about that? <laughs> Um, that was Legion of Superheroes, by the way, in case you want to do a deep dive. Um, so we, we were getting serious and, and knew that New York City was not a place we wanted to settle down. This was when DC was still headquartered there, and you pretty much had to be there to work there. Um, so we both sort of uh, left that business and uh, moved to Virginia, where I had family. But getting out of, the, out of the business working for the company meant that I could continue writing about comics. Um, I established ComicsWorthReading.com in 1999. I'd been reviewing on Usenet before then for a real dinosaur moment um, and decided to have my own website where I could collect my writings and I've been going since then. I call it the longest running independent site dedicated to news and reviews about comics um, because I do not know of anything out there longer that is not corporate. That's impressive. Uh, so, yeah, over, over 20 or 22 years now. Wow. So... And, and it's also, I, I like to say that it's also, um, as part of the Small Press Expo celebration of alternative comics, they have a collection of the Library of Congress, and my website is part of that collection. Whoa, that so, is, wow. That's yeah. amazing. That's really amazing. So, well, I think y'all can relate to if you just stick out doing something long enough, suddenly people notice. <laughs> That is true. Hey, one of these days, people are going to notice our little show. That's good. Um, so talk a little bit about the evolution of the comics industry and maybe the comics as they're consumed by the public. I mean, we can go all the way back to the, uh, the golden, the silver eras, if you want. But certainly uh, over the last 25, 30 years or so, there must have been a lot of change. Oh, most definitely. Um, when I got into comics fandom, you could count the number of known female fans and known female creators on two hands and have fingers left over. Um, that's really, there, there's been so much change just in the time period that I've been observing comics and commenting on them from um, obscure periodicals and direct market shops to the... For the last few years, at least some of those years, it's been the biggest growing category of book sales, graphic novels have been, um, especially those dedicated for younger readers, um, which is amazing. Um, there's so much more diversity. There's so much more diversity of the way you can bring your work to market. I mean, I always loved comics because you didn't really need a lot of people. It was, you know, one person with a pencil and they could get their viewpoint out there. It may not you know, be enough to make them a living. It may not sell well, but it could get out there. Um, and now there's just so much more diversity of viewpoints and people making comics and being supported in making comics. We've also seen the explosion of digital comics, the crowdfunding model. Um, the question of what makes a publisher is a fascinating one because so much of what publishers used to do for people, um, now people can do for themselves in a variety of ways, which means that you, you've lost a number of gatekeepers, which is good, but it also means that there's so much more out there that it's very, very difficult to keep up with it all. Um, when I started writing about comics, you could read all the good comics because there were only so many of them and you could keep up with them, and now it's just impossible to do so, which is a, which is a terrific thing. Yeah. Well, Joanna, were you one of those kids who, uh, what was your earliest connection to comics? Were you one of those kids who collected comics and couldn't wait for the next issue to come out? Um, I, I would 
not call, I would not ever call myself a collector, although the, <laughs> um, the 500 boxes of comics in the basement probably speak otherwise. Um, no, I was always a reader. When, um, when I was a kid, my dad was in the military, and we would go to the base for shopping, and the only thing I could find to occupy myself was going to the, the newsstand section and reading through the comics there. Um, so I just kind of, I, I was a DC kid because that always comes up where you DC or Marvel at a certain era because those are the, the, those are the choices basically. Um, it's like, it's like Coke or Pepsi and Ford and yeah, Chevy, right? Pretty much. Um, I don't know. I just, I just sort of read them and I would go through phases. There was, um, there was an interesting phase in the, in the mid eighties where they started doing more diverse things, but still superheroes. Um, so you had funny animal superheroes like Captain Carrot and you had uh, Atari Force, which was like sci-fi superheroes. Um, so I would dip in and out at various times. Um, and then I, like I said, when I, when I got to grad school, I went back into it and I kind of just, it kind of stuck that time around. I think that was about my third try at it. Um, I, and I think that was when uh, Milestone started coming out, which was a, a marker of uh, greater diversity in skin color and in characters, at least through DC. Um, I, I don't know why it stuck that time. It just kind of mm. it clicked. I, I think it was because I started meeting uh, more people. <laughs> Actually, I know what it was. Um, CompuServe <laughs> had a comics discussion group that was very much uh, pros and fans all together talking. So talking to the people who were making the comics oh. and getting that glimpse behind the curtain uh, was really of interest to me. And that's also when I started going to conventions. Um and, and that was a lot of fun, just, you know, meeting people and seeing the fans. And uh, it wasn't quite as huge as it is these days. Um, so that was that was a little bit more manageable. Did you have did you have heroes that you had a chance to meet at conventions or when you were working uh, at D.C.? Or is that not something that was sort of part of your? Well, part so, of my job at D.C. was um, doing the live chats on AOL, where we were doing 12 hours of live programming a week with various comic creators, um, setting up chat rooms where people could come and ask them questions. Um, some of them re were recurring, like we had a regular Batman chat room every week, but some of them were special guests like Grant Morrison or Neil Gaiman or Alex Ross. Um, I set up all those. Um, I got to work briefly with Denny O'Neill, who's since passed away, who was, you know, a huge uh, influence on Batman at the time. Um, uh, Walt Simonson, Walt and Wheezy Simonson were really, really nice to me. Uh, they were working with my husband at the time on the Superman books. Um, I don't know. I, th I think part of it is, <laughs> I, I guess the, the hero I most had a chance to meet was Scott McCloud because he wrote Understanding Comics which really opened up uh, an academic study of, of how do comics work and what does that mean and, and how are there different ways to put them together for meaning. Um, because reading that really changed my life in terms of showing that this was something that, that you could talk intelligently about and it was worthwhile to do so. Hmm. And, you know, the um, obviously things like Comic-Con and uh, all sorts of conventions uh, around the well, not just around the country, but around the globe, are part of this industry. And I know in the Sherlock Holmes world, we talk a lot about how being a Sherlockian, uh, it's more than just really enjoying whatever version of Sherlock Holmes you enjoy. It's about the people that you meet. How is it with, in terms of comics? Because to me, growing up, reading comics it was very much an individualistic thing i got the comic book i you know sat in my room and read it i opened it at the newsstand it was a very personal kind of thing and i didn't really think to engage with other people can you talk a little bit about the culture of uh comics fans and readers oh yes yes i can um i actually just dug out um I think it was 1995, I actually presented a paper at the American Culture Association, Popular Culture Association annual meeting of academics on what were the various ways to interact with comic fans online at the time, which was AOL, CompuServe, or Usenet. So, you know, back in the dark ages, before web bulletin boards, before all these discussion groups or discords or, or Twitter or any of that. Um, it's always been a very mixed bag, uh, particularly for me as a woman who enjoyed comics. Um, I had people saying, I obviously got my job at DC because I must have slept with someone. Um, I had people saying that um, I shouldn't have an opinion because I'm a woman and superheroes weren't for people like me. Um, but at the same time, 
I, you know, met some amazing people who've done some deep thinking about this stuff and, and, you know, learned a whole new way to look at it, learned more about the history. People would swap stories about favorite stories or things that really impressed them. Um, it, you know, it's always been sort of double-sided. Uh, anytime you get a large group of people together liking something, it's, you're going to get, you're going to get some bad apples. Um, but it also is a chance for people who never imagined there were other people who liked the same things they did. And that's always been the real appeal to me of, of um, being online, being on the internet, is, is meeting other people and then getting a chance to meet them in person. That's what made conventions so fun for me is that a number of these people I talked to online were like, sure, I'll, I, you know, I've, I've been to this show before. I'll, I'll meet you at the Chicago Comic Con and I'll show you around and this kind of thing. Um, so it was a way of really building those connections. I don't know if I'm answering your question. <laughs> no, I, I think you're doing a great job, and it's, it's very familiar uh, to, to what our experience is, I think, in the world of Sherlock Holmes. Um, yeah, I actually um, just went to 221B for the first time. Oh, oh tell ago. us about that. Uh, well, it was fabulous. Um, I, had, I have spent, you know, 20-some years going to comic book conventions. I've, I've been to San Diego, you know, the big shows, New York. I've run panels at San Diego. I've been to the Art Fest shows where it's um, all creators and publishers and, and no dealers. Um, I had never before been to a fan-run con which was fascinating because it was just, we're all here because we love this. We're not trying to make money off of it necessarily, although of course seeing the vendors was great too. Um, and, and I actually ran two panels, um, one on Mycroft Holmes, who is my favorite character, and one on Doctor Who, which is also an interest of mine. Uh, and so that was just great, getting together in a room with people and talking about things that we all liked. Oh, that is fantastic. You know, we, we had Heather and Crystal on the show on episode 163, and um, I hope someday, some year, we're able to get down to Atlanta in April and participate in that because we've heard nothing but good things about 221 Beacon. It, it really is fabulous when you, and the fact that it's all in the same hotel, so everybody's there all the time. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I think I'll wander down to the bar and see who else is there and have a chat. You know, it's, uh, I actually uh, had a roommate that I had only met online before and we had a fabulous time. So that, oh. that was great comparing interests and, and, uh, you know, it, just wonderful. Highly recommended. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we will continue talking with Johanna Draper Carlson about Sherlock Holmes in comics. Stay tuned. If you're enjoying this discussion about Sherlock Holmes in comics, Sherlock Holmes in graphic novels, well, we have great news for you. One of our sponsors, MX Publishing, has a number of Sherlock Holmes graphic novels available. There's actually a bundle you can buy where you can get three in one, including A Scandal in Bohemia, The Final Problem, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. These are all three of Peter Kopel's Sherlock Holmes graphic novels, or you can get each one of them individually. In addition, if you go to MX Publishing and search for graphic novels in their search bar, you'll find additional tales that are worth checking out. There's Sherlock Holmes and the Crystal Blue Bottle, which is a graphic novel about a young woman named Desiree Underwood who's been found dead. And of course, Lestrade is baffled by the cause of death and summons the aid of Sherlock Holmes. You can also find Sherlock Holmes and the Horror of Frankenstein, set in London in 1888, where Watson and Holmes are brought in for uh, investigation of a grave robbery. What could it be? Well, we all know, but Holmes and Watson are discovering. So get on over to mxpublishing.com and feed your hunger for graphic novels today. We are back, and we've been enjoying this conversation with Johanna Draper Carlson about the comics world. And uh, as you've all been waiting for, we're getting to the Sherlockian part of the conversation. You knew it was coming. I think it was the title that uh, gave it away. But, uh, Johanna, talk to us a little bit about how you first discovered Sherlock Holmes' existence in the world of comics. 
Well, um, <laughs> how did I know about Sherlock Holmes? Well, certainly we have all the DC comics pretty much um, back to mm, at least the 70s. Uh, my husband was has been collecting since 1964 and his mother never threw his away. So um, I, I had the, the one shot um, that DC did in 1975, and I had the Detective Comics anniversary issue where Alan Moore, uh, sorry, Alan Davis drew um, the Jeremy Brett inspired Sherlock Holmes meets Batman kind of thing. And so I just kind of knew these existed. The reason I started the SherlockComics.com site is because during pandemic, uh, a couple of my friends, other women journalists and comics uh, who we would normally all go to conventions together hadn't been able to do that. So we had a regular Zoom chat going and one of them was writing a book. And so it turned to the question of what books would we write if we would write books? And I was like, well, I should probably combine my two interests. And they were like, yes, do that. Um, so I created a website and started just reading about, you know, various, uh, searching various sources, um, comics.org database, um, various retailers, and just sort of pulling this together and looking at what I had, um, <laughs> one of the ones I started with, obviously, because I am a media fan, was the Titan Comics Sherlock manga, um, the retelling of the episodes um, translated from the Japanese, which I thought was fabulous, hmm. because they, it, it, there's so many levels involved in that. It's like, hey, here's a comic about the TV show based on the stories. Um, and, and then it was just a matter of, you know, it was fun to online shop during the pandemic, so I just started ordering more of these. Um, actually, one of the things that did happen is is one of my comics journalist friends was doing a, uh, a media podcast and invited me on to talk about uh, The Adventures of Adele Blanc-Sec, which is a translated French adventure comic. And one of the other people on the on the on the podcast, it turns out, was the person that drew the self-made hero, the four adaptations of the novels in comic form, which are some of the most faithful adaptations. And I'm like, wow, this is quite the coincidence. <laughs> so it just it just kept popping up in various forms. Yeah. Um, one of the things that really fascinates me is the fan books that were done from about 2012 to 2015. There were a number of people that did um, online comics, web comics, fan comics for the for the BBC Sherlock show, and it, you know if you miss them, you miss them. They're like this weird little ephemeral slice where they sold books, but they only sold as many as they had pre-orders for, and then they disappeared. So I'm still trying to figure out a good way to research more of those. Hmm. Um, but you know, there's just been all these things through all this history, and again, getting back to what we were talking about about the different eras of comic production, a lot of these it's easy just to order the collections of. They keep them in print. They're books now. I mean, they may have been serialized as a five-issue miniseries or whatever, but uh, you can just buy them and read them. And that's really what I've been focusing on, is things people can read for themselves if they want to. Got it. So what's what's the biggest surprise that you've come across as, as you've uh, kind of gone down this rabbit hole of Sherlock Holmes in comics? Um, well... <laughs> One was the um, uh, choose your own adventure style comic game books, which I love uh, by Van Ryder Games. They've done five, soon to be six of these, where you um, read the comic panel and it says, make the choice. Who do you who do you ask the question? Turn to that panel. And so it's, it's this fascinating combination of comics and games and, and um, you know, self-directed storytelling. But the biggest pleasant surprise has been I I launched this site on February 21st because that was coming up and I knew I had to set a deadline or I was never going to do it. And it's 2-2-1 day, right? So <laughs> I put the news out there and two people said, would you like my collection? <laughs> Goodness. And I was like, and, and you were one of them. Thank you very much. <laughs> But well, I generosity. didn't give you a choice. I just sent it to you. <laughs> <laughs> the generosity of, of fellow Sherlockians. Um, I mean, because when people say this, I thought, okay, so they're going to send me 20 comics or something. That's great. Whatever. No, I got these boxes of these stacks of comics, and I'm still sorting through them because it's just amazing how much um, I now don't have to go hunt down things on eBay. <laughs> so that, that because those those back issue approach, as I said, I was taking a more of what's available now approach, but this back issue approach really covers the '80s and '90s 
before reprints became so common and when um, small publishers were multiplying like daisies and people would just get out there and, and there's not a lot of, of historical material about them available. So that's been amazing. Um, and then it turns out that one of them in the collection was one my husband had edited and barely remembered. So that was fun too. <laughs> How about that? Which one was that? <laughs> that was Eclipso number eight. Um, Eclipso is this like, well, there's this black diamond and it possesses people and they get this eclipse thing on their face and they become a villain. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> but it ran, it ran like 18 issues. Villain titles are always tricky. Um, and in one of them, for some reason, Robert Lauren Fleming is doing a story where Irene Adler gets possessed by the black diamond and goes after Sherlock and Watson. <laughs> Hey, that that so, works. That works for a for a, a plot device, sure. It was. It was. Ted McKeever drew it in a really interestingly chunky style, and uh, it was it was quite the pleasure to read. I'm like, oh, I can approach this much better now that I yeah. have another approach to it. Now I have to um, admit, when I was in college, it was the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, I was a huge Batman fan at the time. There was a whole resurgence of interest in Batman. I had a Newberry Comics just down the street in Boston. And I remember going to, it was a small uh, dealer's convention at the Heinz Convention Center there. And that is where I came across Classics Illustrated. Must have been from the 1950s. And I think there were three issues that had Sherlock Holmes stories in them. And, you know. Based on my research, there were two. Two, okay. There was an early one that had three mysteries and the sign of the four was one of them. Right. And then there was another one that combined Study in Scarlet and Habit the Baskerville. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. So um, I, I would see those and, um, you know, admire them in their, in their cardboard-backed plastic wrappers. And as, a, as an undergraduate, as a poor undergraduate, seeing them priced at, $25. I was like, oh my gosh, that's too much for me. And and now, you know, I wish I had bought them because uh, they were in pristine condition and some of them have gone for uh, for some pretty high uh, high numbers. But that's where I, I realized, hey, there's this, there's this interesting crossover. And I began uh, collecting the um, classic specialty, uh, no, classic, uh, Ill no, it wasn't classic illustrated. It was the Daniel Day uh, illustrated ones. Cases of Sherlock Holmes. The Cases of Sherlock. That's the one. Mm -hmm. And a mm -hmm. um, lot of Basil Rathbone and Jeremy Brett inspired drawings there. Um, and I, I remember being frustrated with them at the time because the early uh, issues were all caps. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was really hard to read. So I had just, I'd actually just read those two days ago. Um, yeah, that, that's a really interesting thing because there's a, in the letter column, the letter columns are great for showing what people were thinking about at the time. In the letter column, one of the later issues, people were writing in going, could you please use mixed case, you know, lowercase letters? And then they changed to that and people were like, hey, I hope you like this better, you know, responding to the readers in the letter column. But uh, that, that is an interesting series. That was one of the small presses that I was, was mentioning. Yeah. Um, Renegade Press for the first 15 right. issues and then North Star Publishing for the last five. Um, and North Star was a part of Malibu, I think, which had some really interesting history. But, yeah, it's, it's you know, people are trying to get traction. It's, it's in the 80s, you have the rise of what we call the direct market, which means comic book shops. And the big change in, in marketing there is that instead of comics being returnable, which meant that in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, they printed three to sell one because they expected a lot of them to get returned or destroyed. Um, the comics were sold to dealers non-returnably in this direct market system. And that meant that the shops were taking on more of the risk, but it also meant as the back issue market developed, the stores had less risk because if they didn't sell it this week, it would be worth something later on. Now, with the rise of collections and reprints nowadays, that doesn't ex mean so much anymore. Um, you used to have to find a back issue to be able to read something. Now, if you look for the back issue, you're really a collector and you're worried about condition and all that kind of thing. Um, so there's been a real change in how this all operates. Um, but in the 80s, 
uh, you could open up a store and and sell back issues. And a lot of these independent comic presses said, "Hey, we can we can you know sell to these dealers. There's there's a huge audience for this stuff. They need more more product for their stores." And it was just a real transformation. Well, that's fascinating. You know, when we when we think about the you know all of these modern uh, developments that we've seen, and we can actually go back to the early days of uh, Sherlock Holmes appearing in the comics. I think there was, and I think I may have sent you a few copies of this. Uh, there was a series called Sherlock Holmes of the 1930s, and I know back in that era, um, I think Edith Miser uh, was one of the uh, the writers for it. Those are reprints of the comic strips. Okay. I haven't yet really dug into that because that's a whole other thing and I'm trying to keep myself focused. Um, in part because I am supposed to be talking about this at the DePaul conference uh, oh. next weekend. Well, perfect. <laughs> well, I still have to sort of finish the presentation. So my theory is that the way Sherlock Holmes is portrayed in the comics actually changes with the way that the market is changing or has changed as we talk about it. It starts out with classic reprints and then it becomes, I'm going to use that same character, but I'm going, I'm going to keep it in that sort of pastiche format. I'm going to tell stories that could have been that. And then as things go on, you start getting more and more different versions of the character. Um, <laughs> you know, you get the, the Sherlock Bones dog in manga, <laughs> or you get the uh, punk woman in Baker street, which came out from caliber in the eighties and nineties. Um, so it, these different approaches, can all, and they can also be tagged to the media at the time. You get a number of uh, wisecracking action Sherlock's around the time that the Robert Downey movies were coming out, for instance. Um, but because the character is so well known and so recognizable to people, he becomes this touchstone that reflects how the market and the audience is changing. At least that's my thesis, and that's what I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> I like that. And I, I think that not only happens in uh, comics, but it happens in pretty much every medium that we run across uh, Sherlock Holmes. It, they're, they're all very responsive, uh, whether it's the stage or television or the big screen. You know, we've seen these various versions of Holmes come up. I mean, look at Robert Downey Jr. as basically the, uh, the superhero Sherlock Holmes. Um, you know, with the shirt off and the, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, just kind of the hard scrabble approach rather than the thinking man's homes that we saw on, uh, say, the BBC, for example. So a little bit it's of... funny you should mention that because in the latest issue of Sherlock Holmes magazine, I actually wrote an article on whether Sherlock could be considered a superhero or not. And what do you think? Well, <laughs> first you have to define a superhero, which is much like defining porn. It's hard to do, but you know it when you see it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, actually, I, there, I, I use a characteristic-based definition in terms of a recognizable visual costume or, or presentation, um, abilities beyond that of normal people. Um, usually there's a sidekick. Usually there's a, there's a villain antagonist. Um, yes, I think he qualifies as a superhero, particularly the way his mental powers start being portrayed more recently. Well, not to mention that with the Inverness uh, cloak, I mean, he was the original caped crusader. <laughs> yes. And, and he had a utility belt. You know? and, and, you know, when Batman meets him in Detective Comics 572, that's kind of what he says. <laughs> that's, that's totally on, on point. Yeah. But, you know, it really is, it really is fascinating to me as just how... I love comics because it's such a flexible medium and there's so much you can do without it. And it's so uniquely American in so many ways. So to see the various ways um, Holmes has been portrayed in terms of uh, either I want to be very, very faithful or I'm going to be very silly about it. Or even um, one of my favorite portrayals is Watson and Holmes, um, which unfortunately did not run very long. It was uh, in uh, 2013 to 2016, um, but it was a, a black urban portrayal where John Watson was back from Afghanistan and operating out of a hospital in New York City. 
Um, so there, there's so much you can do with these characters, as, as you say, in, in various media. And this is why I thought pop culture was so worth studying, is because um, it's what we say about ourselves when we don't realize we're talking about ourselves that can be so telling. That's a, that's a great point. And just uh, as a side note, uh, back on episode 44, we interviewed Brandon Perlow, Justin Gabry, and Carl Bowlers for Watson and Holmes. Uh, something I haven't thought of till you uh, just mentioned that again. So thank you for that. <laughs> so glad I could help with the plug. <laughs> well, we've covered a lot of things. I'm I'm curious, Johanna. Do you think there's anything specific about Sherlock Holmes? Because one of the I mean the great point you you made, and m- among the many great points you made, and it's interesting. I, I wish I could be at the DePaul conference to hear more about that. Is the mirror of our times? You know how how the popular culture perception of the character is reflected in in the comics, and so therefore the comics become a great sort of guide to where popular culture is about the character. But do you think there's anything sort of special about Sherlock Holmes, or would that be exactly the same for any popular character? You know, like Robin Hood or Superman or Spider Man or anybody else. Well, I mean, I, I can speak to Superman. <laughs> I know that fairly well. There have been various attempts at Robin Hood comics over over the years, but they've all kind of fizzled out. There's there's never been a very long run of any of them, even even when people have tried revamps. Um, I, and it's odd, now that you mention it, um, it's always been tricky for people to write super smart characters. Um, that's why Lex Luthor went from mad scientist to sort of just evil businessman um, because it's hard to write smart people. Uh, <laughs> um, so it, it's interesting that he keeps popping up. I, I guess it's just the the familiarity and the comfort of the best known detective. Um, mm. You know, bringing order to, to our world is something we seek. I, I was, Marvel did a, a two issue How to the Baskervilles adaptation in, in one of their magazine formats during, during the mid seventies. And the intro to the first issue um, talks about how there was this little mini boom because it was around the time that uh, 7% Solution was coming out and then Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother and these things. And I found myself wondering why. Why did this have this sort of reoccurrence in the mid-70s? And, and y'all may know better than I what sort of theories there are about that, but it was certainly a time of a lot of change. And so returning to... You know, the Victorian foglit streets may have been quite comforting. Um, more recently, last decade, there was kind of a boom in Sherlock Holmes and monster comics, either steampunk or vampires or um, Cthulhu mythos or any of those, which I've always found not to my taste. Let's say that. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I'm very fond of the whole, no, no, we don't do that here. It's, it's there, you know, everything is explainable. Um, but I can see why um, that may have been appealing at a time of, of social change and discomfort for people when they wanted something um, more solid, somebody to give them the answer. But I don't know. It's all speculation, really. Well, you know, th- there was uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was Scarlet by Gaslight which brought Holmes in connection with um, with Dracula. And there was a case of blind fear, which put him in touch with the Invisible Man. Ooh, I hadn't heard of that one. That one sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to look through my collection here, what I have left, and, um, and see if I can reference it. And some of our listeners may be... Um, connected in this way too um and and this may be an interesting way to get you um you know maybe to fill any gaps on your shelf johanna um either through the strangers room on facebook i don't know if you're on facebook but um that's a great place to ask people uh, about some of this stuff and um there's there's some stuff now that's out of print you know i'm i'm thinking of um Oh, gosh, our friend Scott Bond, who was the uh, comic illustrator for the Baker Street Journal for 40 years. Uh, Art in the Blood uh, that the Baker Street Irregulars Press put out in, I think it was 2016, to honor him. So uh, that's that's now out of print as well. But again, uh, we interact with our, our little community here. Maybe some mm-hmm. folks can find copies of some of these. 
I'm, sure, sure. I'm uh, wondering. Well, yeah, oh, sorry, I'm wa- go ahead. No, I'm just wondering if that adventure about Sherlock Holmes and the Invisible Man was difficult to draw. <laughs> <laughs> All the pages are blank. Yeah. Well, you know, there there is actually a fight in a snowstorm issue once when somebody got really, really lazy. But anyway, um, <laughs> it, it is interesting as I look at these small press Sherlockian publications to see how much they do have in common with the small press print runs of the 80s comics. Um, you know, they, they put it out to the audience that's interested. And then if you come along later, well, better hope there's a there's a reseller and it's not too pricey by that point. Say we may we may have co- I don't think we've covered this, but you know it just occurred to me one of the questions our one of our, our listeners might have is what was the f- I think we alluded to it, but what was the first appearance of Sherlock Holmes in comics? It was one of the classics illustrated, the best I can determine. And that was uh, roughly from a time schedule time time frame. When was that? Oh, was in that? in the thirties. Uh, oh, the, the thing about the Classics Illustrated is they kept being reprinted. <laughs> I oh, mean, right. you know, they're just kind of perpetual. Um, so, but uh, yeah, Classic Comics, I'm sorry, I was wrong, 1944. Classics Comics number 21, 1944 featured the sign of the four. Yeah, interesting. Um, and the thing about those is that um, due to digital printing, there are some aspiring people who have uh, made their own copies and are selling reprints. <laughs> I guess under the presumption that they're no longer in copyright. Good old internet. It'll it'll <laughs> figure out it'll figure a way around everything. Yeah. Um, so here's a fun fact. Much like the movies, the most adapted Sherlock Holmes story is Hound of the Baskervilles. Makes yeah. sense. With last I counted nine or ten adaptations in comics form, depending oh, on wow. whether you count the illustrated diary format as a comic. Goodness. I wrote about that for Sherlock Holmes magazine too. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you, clearly you're getting around. Uh, you, you know, you've obviously got your own site. You're writing for uh, some of these great publications. Uh, you're showing up at the conferences. Um, I, you're doing all the right things. Oh, and you're on this little podcast we've heard of too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Let me, Joanna. Let me ask you an unfair question. So here you are. Your first brush with Sherlock Holmes was the Baring Gould annotated you've been involved in this forever you worked for dc you're so well connected to all this you've got a collection you've got sherlock holmes in comics on the internet what is your favorite sherlock holmes comic the one you know if you could just pull one off the shelf when the house was on fire what would you be what would you be taking with you what is or, or for another reason what do you think did the best job bringing the character to life on the comic page. Well, so the reason I create websites is because when people ask me questions like this, my mind goes blank, but I'm sitting in front of my shelves, so I am able to look and see. And I will say the series I have enjoyed the most recently is one called Shirley and Jamila by Jillian Gores. I'm saying that wrong. Um, But basically it is a uh, young woman version of Sherlock and John, except it's Shirley and... Um, Jamila Wahid and the first one is called Save Their Summer and it is uh, not particularly canon related although the characters are great but the second one is called Shirley and Jamila's Big Fall and it's a retelling of the Charles Augustus Milverton story Hmm. where there's an older boy who is blackmailing their fellow students Hmm. but just the the joy and showing how easily this translates and how universal the characters and what they can do are, it really appeals to me. That's fantastic. You know, I, um, I pulled my small collection off the shelf here. Um, and I, I'm, I'm seeing that Scarlet and Gaslight is from Eternity Comics. And they're the ones who followed up with uh, A Case of Blind Fear. Martin Powell. Uh, was behind that, uh, yes. um, and Seppo Makinen. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but um, my favorite in all of this is a real tangential reference to Sherlock Holmes from your old publisher from DC, and this is, um, gosh, what, what year was this? 
1989, right? So this is back when uh, there was a big push for all sorts of Batman stuff. And this is where I first uh, discovered there could be a crossover between Sherlock Holmes and, and Batman. It is Gotham by Gaslight. And it is a oh, yes. retelling of Jack the Ripper. And Bruce Wayne is visiting with Sigmund Freud. That's one of their Elseworlds. That, right. Um, he says, uh, my time is short. You'll have to uh, trust me to be careful and to have been a good student. And Freud says, do not fret upon that. A good student you have indeed been. My friend, the London detective, said very much the same. And that's all that we've got for Sherlock Holmes and Gotham by Gaslight. But that's close. <laughs> we all know who he's talking about. <laughs> so, got yeah. closer to Dracula and another one of the Elseworlds. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, those were fun stories. Fascinating stuff. Well, Johanna, this has been a wonderful conversation with you. If folks would like more information, obviously you want to go to Sherlock Holmes in excuse me sherlockholmescomics.com nope 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 nope, nope sherlockcomics.com sherlockcomics.com i knew i would get it wrong see um you can count on me sherlockcomics.com and check out all the uh the, the content there the the archives and obviously what is actively being developed what, joanna joanna what, what's the 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 next big thing that you're working on for the site that we should all stay tuned for oh golly um <laughs> i still keep thinking i need to read muppet sherlock holmes and and process that but uh, <laughs> there there's some real obscurities that have that have kind of just turned up that uh, i don't know it's 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 great because there's all kinds of stories you can read and so I just jump around from, from bit to bit to sort of make sure that it's as complete as I can make it. Well, sounds like a lot of fun. And we're so glad you get to have fun on our behalf. So thank you. And thank you for being here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you very much for having me. It's exciting. You know, I hadn't realized until talking to Johanna how much the comics industry had evolved and fragmented and um, developed in different pockets. You know, having grown up in a world where there was DC and Marvel and maybe, you know, one or two other publishers, I hadn't realized that it's because of technology, because of time, because of creativity, because of style, because of the internet, because of communication, the the fact that it's become, you know, fragmented in a marvelous way and global, and to see so many interesting things happening. Yeah, and I mean, it's really a representation of so much in the world of entertainment these days that uh, because so many people are able to create, there are so many different distribution mechanisms now uh, there's so much material out there uh, and and it is uh, both uh, there there are there are pros and cons to it you know having so much material is wonderful uh, being able to find discernible quality material is a little more problematic you really have to hunt for it it's it's akin to having you know three television networks that you know you could rely on their programming and now we've got you know, hundreds, if not thousands of channels to choose from, both uh, streaming online and through traditional methods. Um, it, it's the classic curse of uh, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> One of the great Sherlockian periodicals is back. The 2021 Sherlock Holmes Review, edited by Steve Doyle, Art Direction by Mark Gagan, with all new contributions from Nicholas Meyer, Robert Doherty, Frank Cho, Anne Margaret Lewis, Steve Hawkinsmith, Les Klinger, Jimmy Aiken, and more. 118 pages about Sherlock Holmes, the illustrators, community, collecting, comics, reviews, 
film and TV, scholarship, including new artwork, Irene Adler drawn by the inimitable Frank Cho. It looks like a book and reads like a magazine. It's the Sherlock Holmes Review. Get your first edition copy of this essential 2021 Sherlockian annual, the all-new Sherlock Holmes Review, at wessexpress.com. love that sound, it means that it's time for us to match wits once again with these wonderful quotes we call canonical couplets. We give you two lines of poetry and we expect you to discern which Sherlock Holmes story we are talking about. The last time around these parts, you may recall that we gave you this clue. Some 50 murderers had crossed Holmes's path as this case was begun. After Holmes's unique engagement, the count was 51. Bert, <laughs> here we go. Uh, tell me, which Sherlock Holmes story were we referring to? Oh, that's obvious. That's the one where Holmes trains a chicken to tap out a secret code. That's, that's the dancing hen. Oh, boy, that's foul. Eat <laughs> a uh, dancing hen. No, no, no? Not, not quite right. Uh, Eric Deckers, of course, has another crack at it. He says, uh, I remember this story very well. I read it every week when I was a young boy. It's the story of a campy game show panelist who blackmails his contestants into sharing their winnings with him lest he reveal their deepest darkest secrets it's the adventure of charles nelson riley <laughs> oh wait wait i'm thinking of match game my mistake he says it's the adventure of charles augustus milverton yes yes that is quite right eric uh, both you and bert were deluded into thinking it was something uh, more comedic in nature than it actually was. But we do appreciate your efforts nonetheless. So we do have a number of folks who responded to this. It was a great uh, episode for us to get some replies in. We're going to go over to the big prize wheel and give it a spin. Watch it go around. Coming to rest randomly on number... 41, number 41, and that looks like it is uh, Madeline Quinones. Congratulations to you, Madeline. We will be getting a copy of Referring to My Notes out to you as a prize. Now, this time around, we have a copy of DC Magazine's Sherlock Holmes. Uh, this is from September, October 1975, and it involves the final problem. It also includes a wonderful one-page panel of Shazam advertising for Twinkies. So you get that as a bonus. And we'll give you this clue. It was a tiny treasure, not quite a bean in size. Holmes relied on simple means. It pays to advertise. If you think you know the answer to this episode's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment that I hear of Sherlock.com. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win the prize. Good luck. Well, Bert, I think that that issue of uh, the Sherlock Holmes DC comic is worth it for the Twinkie advertisement alone. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Frederick Wortham says I can't read comics. So. <laughs> well, you know, if that doesn't work for you, there's a coupon you can send in for Roman War Soldiers, a 132-piece Roman soldier set for only $2.25. Yeah, I yeah. did that once, and I just couldn't feed them all. My goodness, my parents were really irritated when 100 Roman soldiers show up in your back garden. 
Well, you know, it, it, they, they vary in, in size and in appetite. Uh, I, I would imagine <laughs> the four mounted generals won't eat much, but the 24 foot soldiers and 24 cavalrymen may be a little more hungry. Uh, mean, meanwhile, the four chariots with drivers, uh, well, they can go and <laughs> they can serve as DoorDash for the rest of the crew. Oh, you never know. Yeah. Well, we will be back here for episode 240 uh, just 15 days from now in the middle of May. We hope you will join us for that. Who is our mystery guest this time? Well, you'll have to tune in to see. And frankly, we don't know yet because we haven't booked them. So <laughs> the constant demands of producing a podcast right here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Well, until that time, this is the oh-so-mysterious Scott Monty. <laughs> and I'm approved by the Comics Code Authority. I'm Burt Wolder. And together, we say... The, the game's, games afoot. afoot. <laughs> the, the game's afoot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.